you'll join me in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, if you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 1028. Revelation chapter 2, this morning we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. The title of our sermon this morning is Ephesus, Forsaking. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are first, love, and works. And this morning we're beginning a new sermon series uh, called Dear Church. And as we do this, we're going to be looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, some of you are probably wishing I would just preach through the whole book of Revelation. Maybe someday I will, but for now we're just going to focus on these uh, two chapters uh, over the next few months. There's some very important principles for us to pull from the text And so today I want to introduce us to the book as a whole and look at what the letters to the churches are. And then specifically, we will look at the first letter, which is a letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, to many Christians, Revelation is a book of intrigue. It's a book of mystery. Some Christians spend far too much time reading into it and think they know. Sadly, others ignore it completely because it's a type of literature uh, called apocalyptic literature on the whole that we're entirely unfamiliar with in the 21st century. Now, there's certainly a tremendous amount of debate about the book of Revelation on the whole. Much of it is unnecessary, and, and even these letters we're looking at have some debate behind what they were intended for. Uh, What would good biblical interpretation be without some disagreement among friends, right? Now, I'm of the opinion that Revelation is not a big and scary book that that it's often made out to be. I'm also of the opinion that God didn't intend for Revelation to be extremely mysterious for us to have to have a decoder ring from our Cracker Jack box or to study calculus to figure out how it all fits together. So I want to focus first on giving us at least an overview of what the letter is, but we need a bit of background uh, leading up to that. What happens in chapter 1, and how do we get to these letters that are being written to the churches? Now, the book of Revelation was written by John the Apostle, and it's written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They're representing all of Christ's churches. And we'll see the letters to each of these individual churches. There's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And church history tells us, chapter 1 tells us, that John was in a place that was on an island called Patmos. He was exiled. He was, as church history understands it, the only of the apostles that wasn't Uh, that wasn't martyred. He was exiled to an island to die there. This was southwest of Ephesus. It was there that he recorded the visions that God gave him for the book of Revelation. Now, the church addressed, uh, the churches addressed in Revelation were being threatened in various ways. And we'll see what those ways are over, over the next few months as we work through each one of them. The seven churches fell really into three different groups. The first one we'll look at today, and then the last one we'll see at the end, were in danger of losing their identity as the Christian church. So, So Christ exhorts them to repent in order that they might prevent their judgment, that they might inherit the promises that genuine faith deserves. 
The churches, the three middle churches, the, the three in, in, the, in the center of the, the seven, all, uh, all three of those to varying degrees have uh, remained faithful, uh, but they have some compromises with pagan culture. Among them, Pergamum is in the best condition, Sardis in the worst. So these, these churches are exhorted to purge all of these things, all these elements of compromise from among them. And then the second and the sixth letters are written to churches which have proved themselves faithful. They prove themselves to be loyal to Christ's name, even in the face of persecution from both Jews and pagans. And so we see this, this spectrum among all of the churches, and surely in those we find ourselves, we find where we are as a church, maybe with one of them or maybe with a combination of a few of them. And even what we see, though, is even though they were poor, even though they were of little power, they are encouraged all throughout the letters to continue persevering as the true Israel, as the church, since more trials will confront them in the days ahead. They are to endure with hope that they will inherit the promises of eternal salvation. This will be our understanding of the book as we press on and the intention of why it was given. But the big picture from the beginning to the end of the book of Revelation on the whole is this unveiling, this, this, this unveiling, this revealing of the unseen spiritual battle that's going on. We have God and who He is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on, on the triumphant, victorious side of this battle, doing battle against Satan and all of his evil allies. And, and in this cosmic, supernatural conflict, we see the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who has already won the victory, sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning forever and ever. He's already won. He's already conquered the devil through his sacrificial death. And yet, the church continues to face the attacks of the evil one through all the various means that we're going to see in these letters as we move through them. So what we have in the book of Revelation is a revealing of a spiritual reality. And so we're sort of taking a look behind the veil and seeing what's going on behind all of the trials and all of the temptations and all of the time uh, that this goes on between Christ's first coming and, and second coming, the time that we live in right now. And this book is emphatically asserting in a very dramatic way that Christ's triumph in the new heaven and the new earth is ours to rest in and ours to behold. And so when the church faces trials, whatever those are, Revelation is showing us that, yes, in those moments, those trials are real. Those things have to be dealt with according to God's word. Those are, those are real things that God has put into our lives to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ. But the forces behind those challenges, the real things going on behind those challenges and trials and, and temptations are, are real. There is real persecution. There is real evil. And there are spiritual realities that involve the great enemy of the church. And while those will continue until Christ returns, and Christ will return, when he does, as far as evil is concerned, it is game over. And praise God for that. There will be a day when there is no more sin. 
So John had this revelation both to warn and to strengthen the church so that as we face suffering, as we face trials, as we face temptation, we can keep pursuing the things of God and not be defiled by these various temptations and, and all the things that face us in this present world. Revelation is not intended to scare us. It's not intended to baffle us. It's intended to give us hope and assurance that the victory is already won. And the great wedding feast of the Lamb awaits all who are in Christ. The table is set. And if you can remember that, while we're working through, and whenever you read through the whole book of Revelation at the end of the year, when you get to the end of your Bible reading plan, when you're reading through the book of Revelation, if you can remember that, hopefully you're not going to venture off into thinking some, some weird things that is never intended. Revelation is not about China and India attacking America with Apache helicopters and Scud missiles. That, wasn't, that didn't exist. That wasn't a thing in John's day. He wasn't writing about that. We need to remember this is a book of promise. It is a book of hope. It is a book that gives assurance that Christ is victorious and we are his people and we can face whatever is before us by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. So in chapter 1, we have a prologue and it's, uh, it's the very first vision that John is given. It sets the stage and it gives us a look at who the book is focused on, mainly Christ and his church. And running alongside that is the evil world rulers and all of the evil cosmic powers that are controlled by Satan. And we see that Jesus is the glorified Christ who controls all things by the power of his word. Now the book opens by showing us that this is a a visionary revelation. In other words, this is a vision of John's. This is something he has seen. It's been shown to him. It is being revealed to him. And and this first vision continues all the way through the first three chapters. So the letter we're going to be looking at is sent from Christ to the churches, and they are a part of John's vision. They are revealed to John. So so really, chapters 2 and 3 we have our, our part of what's going on in chapter 1. 1, 2, and 3 go together in the first part of John's vision. So one, one thing you'll notice about the letters is that they're sort of like uh, form letters that you see in uh, businesses sometimes. A letter that sort of has the same format each time it goes out and the, the content is, is unique Uh, But the framework and the structure is the same. So each of these letters is going to have very similar format. Apocalyptic literature is a bit poetic. There is symbolism. It's like wisdom literature, too. You sort of get a sense that some uh, artistic work has been put into how it's written. Uh, But it also has very intimate pastoral implications that are written like any other letter, and these being from Christ. Now, as John is writing these, we have to understand as well that John is very familiar with the churches that are being written to. He's not sort of writing this out of nowhere, not having any clue about these people. He knew these churches very well. These were not anonymous people. Now, one last note before we get to the text, and why I say these letters are for all of Christ's churches, not just those that they're specifically addressed to. The churches were natural centers for disseminating information to all the other churches in a province. 
So while the letter of Ephesus is dealing with specific issues in that church, it's, it's not to say that the church of Ephesus was the only church dealing with what's being addressed. How do we know that the broader churches were also involved in the writing of these letters? Because each letter ends with this phrase, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So this is for all of the churches of Asia Minor, They were to heed the promises, they were to heed the warnings given to each of the churches and apply them to themselves. While at that moment in time, the specifics might not have applied to them in full, they were there for them to look to and to learn from. So with that being said, it's imperative that we ask, that we have the question moving all the way through this series, what are we to do with what we see in the text? To what extent do these situations that will come up apply to our church and our situation? How can we maximize on the strengths and minimize the weaknesses that we see in these churches? If we don't, we're just reading a good book, and it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Application is essential as we work through all of Scripture and all of our ideas of what Scripture is teaching, and and particularly here as we look at letters to the churches. So let's look at the text. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, before we get into our specific headings, I want us to look at verse 1 here and understand what's being said. This is a foundation for all of the other letters as well. Notice the language with regard to the angel of the church, because we're going to see that each time. And this really begins to highlight what we said a few moments ago about the book of Revelation being supernatural and, and revealing the supernatural reality of of what's going on in the unseen realm, and that that very important application uh, to us that comes as individuals in the church. So the letter opens with this imperative to write a letter to the church, and, and we see this progression from Christ to the angel to John to the church. That's how it's being passed along. That's the order it takes. And, and what you can learn from chapter 1 is that there is an angel that is both a guardian over the specific city, but specifically over an entire church. And in this instance, the city of Ephesus and the church within Ephesus. 
So the angels being referred to in the introduction of each letter are, are messengers or overseers of God's plan being worked out among God's people. It's a reminder to us that divine forces are at work and are watching. I I think we also need to remember that each and every church, every local church is a spiritual entity with heavenly life. We are not like any other organization in the world. The local church is a heavenly entity, which when properly established, when functioning biblically, that God appoints angels over his churches that together we may figuratively live at the right hand of Christ under his guidance, under his protection, and partake of all the heavenly blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. That's a great promise to us as the church. Now the city of Ephesus itself was called the metropolis of Asia. It stood at the center of the region. It was the the mother city, and the people of Ephesus knew very well that that's what they were. They were like New Yorkers. They assumed everyone wanted to be like them and couldn't figure out why everyone else didn't want to live there. How could you be happy living anywhere else? That was the idea. So it's natural that they would be the first church that was addressed among the seven. It also made sense in terms of the trade routes and where the mail would have been delivered. It would have been the first stop from Patmos. Now, Jesus begins the letter by introducing himself, and he does so in a manner similar to what we see in the Old Testament prophets. The prophets would say something like, these things says the Lord Almighty, and they're making clear they're delivering a message from the Lord. And so Christ is actually assuming the place of Yahweh here, delivering a prophetic message. And notice it's not these things says the Lord, but rather I say I am the Lord Almighty. So so we can see that these letters are more than just letters. They were a prophetic message from God himself, from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John writes Jesus' words, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, what is all of that? The image we have finds its background in the Old Testament in several places, most clearly in Zechariah chapter 4. The seven lampstands are in reference to the universal church. Not just these seven local churches, but God's church across the world. In Zechariah 4, there's a lampstand, and it has seven lamps on it, naturally. And it's part of the the temple furniture, and it stands... As, as it's referred to, it stands for the entirety of the temple. So it's sort of like saying, I want you to come sit at my table. What am I saying with that? Well, my table represents you coming into my home, sharing a meal with my family. It represents the whole of my household and all that goes on within that. And so the idea is that the, the lampstand is, by extension, a representation of all of faithful Israel. It is the household of God, as the Bible refers to God's people. So the lampstand in the tabernacle and the temple was in the presence of God. And the light that went out from that represented God's presence. Similarly, the lamps on the lampstand are interpreted as, as representing God's presence or spirit, which empowers the people of God to finish uh, in Israel, to finish the rebuilding of the temple despite all the resistance they were coming up against. So what does that have to do with Revelation? Well, the church is 
the new Israel. And her power is to be drawn from the Spirit, the divine presence of God. And all this happens before the throne of God to stand and drive against the world's resistance. Remember, we have that great promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And so this is highlighted in chapter 1 when the seven lamps are identified as, uh, as by the Spirit. And in, in Revelation 11, it's confirmed that the lampstands signify God's presence with the church, where the lampstand stands before the Lord of the earth. So the church is given power by the seven lamps on it, which is primarily a power to witness with light in the darkness so that the gates of hell will not prevail. Building up the true Israel, identifying with the new heaven and the new earth. And the shift from one lampstand in Zechariah to seven in Revelation stresses not only The letters in Revelation are intended to represent the church universal, all Christians everywhere. But also that true Israel is no longer limited to a nation. It includes both Jews and Gentiles. It encompasses all people groups. So what does that have to do with anything? What we see is Christ introducing himself as always being in the midst of the church, and he's, he's keenly aware of how we are living as the church. He knows who the church is. He knows what they're doing, both bad and good. And so we'll see both bad and good being revealed in the text. So the first thing I want us to see in the text with regard to the church at Ephesus, what they were doing well, we see in verses 2 and 3. And the principle we can derive from that is that we must not grow weary in discerning truth from error. Jesus commends this church at Ephesus, as we read, because they had discerned doctrinal inconsistency in a group that was calling themselves apostles. More than likely, these were people, and we see this elsewhere, Paul confronted them as well. There was a group of people going around calling themselves apostles, but they were not appointed by Christ to actually be apostles. There were only ever the apostles that are named in the Bible and no others. Even today, many claim to be apostles. They're not apostles. Apostles were a small group of 13 men appointed by Christ for a very specific work. And that's it. And so there were these men walking around saying that they were apostles. And after examining this group and after examining what they were teaching, the church determined that they were false teachers, that they were evil, and the church was standing against them. The church was opposing them. And here's the thing. Sometimes false teachers are hard to detect. Now, I'm not talking about those guys that are on TV, on TBN. It takes you about 30 seconds to figure out that they're not right. They're all money-hungry heretics who say one thing, that whatever they need to say in order to get rich off the backs of, of other people, anyone and everyone who will send them as much money as possible. But there are other false teachers, and more than likely what they were dealing with, they're quite difficult to discern because their craft lies in the ability to appear as though they were right 
And they're, they're sort of distorting part of the message, not the whole thing, but the part of the message that they're distorting is damning. And Jesus is commending the church. He's applauding the church for testing these people who call themselves apostles, realizing they're not, and finding them to be false. He, he's saying, great job on this matter. This must be done. And he tells them they've done a good thing. They've they've toiled patiently in the work of enduring in the name of Christ, discerning truth from error. And why does he say it this way? Well, well, some of you have experienced this. As a pastor, especially if one does extensive work in West Africa, I've, I've had my share of what's going on here. The truth is, if we are to be faithful to the word of God, we're going to have to stand against false teaching from time to time. And sometimes that's going to come at the expense of being opposed and being maligned and being mocked and being labeled. It will happen if you oppose false teaching. And Jesus is saying here that it's important and it's commendable to persevere through that. It's easy to want to back away, but he's saying work hard, work patiently, even under the threat of persecution, to draw a clear line between those who are actually following Jesus and promoting the truth and those who are not. Now, in our day, to stand against false teaching, you're likely to get, uh, you're likely going to face a kind of scorn that sort of sounds something like, you say you're a Christian, but you shouldn't judge someone else. You're not loving one of the things that's often said in charismatic circles is a distortion of a teaching in the Old Testament. I hear this a lot in Nigeria, saying that you should not touch God's anointed. In other words, you shouldn't say anything bad about the quote-unquote man of God. Conveniently, all the big-time prosperity preachers have twisted that to mean you cannot and shall not say anything negative about me or question me or God will curse you. So you either get a version of you cannot and shall not say anything negative at all or question at all or God will curse you or why do you got to be that way? Why you got to be so harsh? Listen, you may not agree, but that's, that's okay. Isn't the heart of Christianity to love everybody? And, and why do we need to let this negativity affect? This just is not cool, man. Why do you want to point to the stuff you don't agree with? Just let them do their thing. They'll, they're fine. And you know, that's tiring. Conflict is tiring. There will be some who will come after you with more of a fight. But the sad thing about the West in the 21st century is that most people just don't care enough to make a big deal out of anything theological. So when you do, when you, when, when you want to make a theological point, you're going to be considered mean-spirited or over, overly critical or judgmental, when in reality, Jesus is saying, you must stand against false teaching. He certainly didn't hold back. He called people dens of robbers and thieves and broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs. The Apostle Paul said that those who preach a false gospel are to be accursed. I don't think Jesus and the Apostle Paul would be well-liked on Facebook and Twitter. Tim Challies was, he helpfully summarized this issue. He wrote this, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, 
but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Brothers and sisters, do you know your Bible well enough, and do you have enough conviction of the importance of the truth to stand faithfully? to persevere against any and all attacks when you stand faithfully against false teaching. We can't grow weary in discerning truth from error and calling error what it is in the face of an ever-compromising world that would just like for you to be quiet about all of it. However, we don't have the luxury to be quiet. The salvation of souls and the purity of the church is at stake. Now, I say all of this, and some guys will hear that. A lot of times it's young men, and they sort of beat their chest and start to get excited about this, and they get online and start their own blog, and they get on Facebook, and they start blasting everyone. Now, maybe you've heard of the M134 Minion. It is a, it's called the minigun. It's a six-barrel rotary machine gun. It's usually mounted in helicopters. It shoots up to 6,000 rounds per minute. That's a bad, that a bad thing right there. You don't, you don't want to be on the other end of that. It has a high sustained rate of fire. If you're behind that thing, it is fun. It is powerful. You can pretty much take out anything you're aiming at at any size. But the problem is... If you use the minigun to try and shoot a soda can, you're going to take out a whole lot of other stuff as well. And unfortunately, there's a tendency, especially among young men who are always looking for something or someone to call heresy, and they hold down the trigger and they just let it fly. They're not concerned with all the collateral damage, and, and they justify it by looking to passages like this one. See, we need to stand for truth. They're not looking at the next two, three verses, verses four, five, and six. What do we learn there? Do not be so zealous in your fight for truth that you lose a love for Christ and his people. The fight for truth is important. It is necessary. But we have to be precise. We have to be careful. It is possible to be so rightly concerned and zealous for the truth of the gospel that we forget what's at the heart of the gospel, namely a love for God and a love for his people. Jesus is rebuking the Ephesians here for falling into that trap. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. What does that look like? Well, biblical love is shown in action, right? It was a chief mark of the early church. No other group had acted in the way of the church. Love of this kind was motivated by by God's own self-giving love for them, and it was expressed by this deep, thankful faith in Christ that made them generous and made them merciful toward one another. And, And one of the things that can happen when you're so zealous about defending the truth is that you start to want to look at everyone with an eye of suspicion. You become overly critical of everything that everyone says. 
There are entire websites. There are men, I'm convinced, they sit in their parents' basements in their pajamas, and they listen to hours and hours and hours of sermons by prominent ministers, and they're trying to find ways to take them out of context and write pages and pages and pages of critiques of their sermons, making sure everyone knows that the only people left in the world who aren't heretics are those who agree with what they're writing. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's easy to try and justify. It's easy to say, hey, look, this is about the truth. So if you don't like the truth, you have to deal with it. You're just not concerned enough about what what God cares about, obviously. But look, being concerned about how we talk to people is not a compromise of the truth. Being concerned about being precise in identifying what is truth and what is error is not a compromise. Being unwilling to jump all over someone for something they say wrong or something uh, that they may not articulate in the best way, that's hasty judgment. It's unloving. And we're all very capable of going there if we're not careful. You know, sometimes the best way to deal with error is not to always point out the error, but to teach the truth. There are times some people do need to be exposed and rejected. There are times when, when someone needs to be named, people need to be warned, no doubt about it, but we ought not make that our hobby. We ought not make that our source of entertainment. We certainly ought not monetize that on the internet and make a living out of it. We should do a lot more grieving over false teaching then we should rejoice in having large audience to broadcast all that we have to say about false teaching too. So the Ephesian church, Jesus said, needs to wake up. They need to remember how things used to be, to repent and get back on track. Why? If you were to go to the city of Ephesus today, massive buildings still stand. They're the reminders of the first century and beyond. The amphitheater alone would take your breath away. Streets, houses, shops, it's possible to get a very good picture of what life would have been like for them. There's a gladiator's graveyard indicating how some of the population spent their free time. The, The temple of Artemis is the Greek name for the Roman goddess Diana. It's one of the wonders of the world. And the Romans, when they established temples to the city of Rome and to the emperor, they did so carefully with, uh, with the massive uh, uh, presence of, of, of Artemis herself. Like they, they wanted to make sure that everything pointed to, to her. So it was very clear what the center of worship was for all of the people. And the population of the city in the first century it was estimated around a quarter of a million people. That's a lot of people. It was the most important city in, in all of western Turkey. But the one thing, if you go to Ephesus today, the one thing you don't find, or in its surrounding towns or villages, what you don't find is an active local church. Ephesus had been one of the major centers of early Christianity And by the early 2nd century, Christian writers were holding up the city of Ephesus as a great example of the Christian faith. And for several centuries, it held this position of preeminence. And and one of the great 5th century church councils was held there in 431. But there are no active churches in Ephesus today. If there are any Christians there, they live in hiding. 
That would have been almost unthinkable to John's audience as it, as it may be for us to imagine some of the, the massive churches that we see in the West, just to see them empty and in ruins. Imagine churches with thousands and thousands of members in the United States today. In 100 years or, or even 50 years, imagine our own church in 50 years not existing at all. That's a devastating thought. But the sense of devastation on a place that was once a thriving Christian witness to the world but is there no more is precisely what Jesus was warning the Ephesian church about. He says, repent, and if not, if you don't, I will come to you and I will remove my lampstand from its place. And that's what he did. It is a severe warning, and we need to be on guard. We need to be on watch. Now, look, if we're rightly standing for the truth and against error, we will be accused of not loving. That's going to happen no matter what, so long as we are faithful to the Scriptures, particularly in an ever-compromising culture that increasingly opposes biblical Christianity. So we need to persevere through that. But we also need to be careful that we have precision in our defense of the truth and our attack on air. We can't just hold down the trigger on our minigun and blow everything and everyone away, assuming we're the only ones left who are standing for Christ. God's people are everywhere. It's foolish to assume otherwise. That's reckless. That's lacking in love. And when we're lacking in love, Jesus warns us, repent or you will go the way of the Ephesians. Well, very quickly, here in verse 6, Jesus says, Yet this you have, you have the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, here's the thing. Nobody knows what the work of the Nicolaitans were, and everyone reads into that with speculation. So I'm not going to go down that road. But what we can discern is that it's tied to the previous commendation. It was part of their standing for the truth of what Jesus was commending them for. Whoever the Nicolaitans were, whatever they were doing, he stood with the Ephesians in their hatred for whatever it was they were doing. And that was a good thing. That's all he's saying there. So what's the point of this? What do we see with a proper balance of defending and standing for the truth and persevering through persecution and yet never losing the love of Christ for God and for his people? Jesus ends this with a great promise in verse 7. And he's telling us our final point this morning, eternal life is for all who are in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These seven letters emphasize the importance of conquering. And when we put that together with the overall story, we see that the main main challenge that the, the young churches faced was the threat of pagan persecution. Now, indeed, over these seven letters, it seems uh, that the Lord is, is preparing these churches for worse to come. They were facing some bad things, but worse was yet to come. And they are to conquer all that they face by following Jesus himself, who won the victory through his own patient suffering. So in these churches, they, they will suffer. Some of them will die. All of them must bear patient witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they will conquer the evil forces that surround them and threaten them. And that's our promise to behold this morning. If you are in Christ, 
If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will eat of the tree of life that is your reward. What Adam failed to do in the garden was done by Christ. And while Adam was denied the tree of life, in Christ the tree of life is granted to us. And so the promise of all of Scripture is that if you put all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you come to him freely, he will receive you. Freely, he will receive you. He will not cast you out. He will not push you away. The Lord Jesus is yours for the taking, and he will make you his own. Brothers and sisters, we must hold tenaciously to the truth of God's word. But we must do so with patience. We must do so with love. We must show mercy to others, always coming to the end of ourselves first and foremost, that we might live more fully upon the righteousness of Christ and not ourselves. And when we do that, we make much of the glory of God not making much of ourselves and who we are, lest we forget who he is and what he's called us to. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Redeemer Baptist Church.